Welcome to today's online workshop and podcast presented by realestateinvestment.training and powered by imedialearning.com. My name is Shane Gillespie from iMedia Learning, and I'm the producer for today's event. Realestateinvestment.training online workshops, podcasts, and in-person continuing education symposiums educate real estate professionals, investors, and wealth managers through the sharing of best practices on the industry's most important topics and trends. During this event, you're welcome to ask questions using the questions feature in your GoToWebinar menu. Ask at any time, but please note we will address them during our Q&A session at the end of the event. Before we start, we'd like to thank our corporate and member association sponsors, Inland Securities, Seattle Funding Group, NAI Puget Sound Properties, Brighton Jones, Taylor Street Capital Partners, the Commercial Brokers Association, CCIM Institute of Washington Chapter, and the Institute of Real Estate Managers for underwriting this event so it can be presented to you for charge. Joining us today is Paddle Moderator and Real Estate Investment Specialist, Derek Doak, CCIM. And joining Derek today are our panelists, Bob Swain, CCIM Partner, NAI Puget Sound Properties, Candice Chevalier, CCIM Principal, Northwest Multifamily Team at Lee & Associates. And if we can get him, hopefully Stuart Williams, Principal at Lee & Associates, will be joining us as well. So Derek, I'm gonna turn it over to you. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. That was, uh, again, not a problem. And this, I think you got it right, didn't you? Yep. It's perfect. All right. <laughs> See? Good job. I took cheater notes. <laughs> well, it looks like uh, Stuart's almost in. Uh, he's trying to join us now. A little technical difficulty here, but he'll be joining us here shortly. And uh, as Shane said, uh, today I am talking about the Seattle Marketplace and give an update on what's going on in Seattle. So with me today with Bob and Stewart, I believe we have a very solid panel that will give us some great insights. Uh, I know each and each of them individually, and uh, I'm excited to hear what they say. Before we get started, though, I want to go around the horn, have everybody kind of introduce themselves, uh, talk about what they do in their area of expertise. And so, uh, Candice, I'd like to start with you. Sure. Um, so my name is Candice Chevalier, and I am the um, principal of the multifamily team here at Lee & Associates Northwest. Um, we're a large brokerage company that's grown quite a bit over the years. Um, about three years ago, we started, and now we're up to about 45 brokers um, and in all product types and all locations kind of in the, um, the Washington state sort of Puget Sound market. So um, I'm also involved in a project called Commercial Analytics, which was to replace some apartment research um, needs here locally. So um, really focused on apartment rental trends, uh, development, sale information, uh, expenses, things along those lines. And um, that's been an interesting project to be involved in and, um, and to support uh, some of the research and, and information that we'll share today. Perfect. Well, thanks, Candice. And anybody out there who hasn't subscribed to that report, and if you're buying or even thinking about buying commercial property, especially multifamily in the Seattle market, you should definitely subscribe to that report. Um, next, I'm going to ask Bob to introduce himself and tell us a little bit about what you do and your area of expertise. Thanks, Derek. Yeah, this is Bob Swain. Uh, I'm a partner at NEI Puget Sound Properties, and um, 
I think we're probably the in that top five of the largest um, brokerage uh, commercial brokerages here in the Puget Sound area. And um, I've been working in the primarily in the South Seattle and North Seattle industrial markets for the last 21 years. Um, primarily, most of it's industrial, but it also do a little a uh, little bit of office in that market and some industrial, um, you know, adaptive reuse of older industrial properties. So uh, half my business is uh, landlord and tenant rep and half of it's uh, user and investment sales. Okay. Well, thanks, Bob. And I don't see Stuart logged on yet, so we'll just go ahead and uh, jump into some of the topics. And then, hey, Derek, uh, I'm on. Oh, yay. On the phone. All right. Mm-hmm. Sorry about that, Stuart. I know I probably sent you a bad link on there, so I appreciate you, uh, you know, fighting through it and, uh, and making it happen. So um, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and uh, let everybody know about who you are, what you do, and what you specialize in. Sure. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Stuart Williams, I work with Candice at Lee & Associates, so she already told you about Lee & Associates. Our team sort of specializes in sales of mainly office projects, industrial and land associated with office, multifamily and industrial. Perfect. All right. Well, let's dive into some questions. Um, I like to start out typically talking about the political nature within the location that we're working. But at this time, I think we're going to let's hold off on that one just for a minute. And uh, let's just talk about doing like a little market update. And uh, and and so, uh, Candace, I want to start with you. If you can kind of give a little bit of a market update on Seattle, kind of where you see the market, um, what you're hearing from your clients, what you're seeing, what type of transactions are getting done these days, and are there actually deals out there? But uh, if you could just give us a little update on the multifamily market in Seattle as you see it, that'd be great. Sure, happy to. Um, so let's see. So with regard to Seattle, we've seen, um, you know, the, over the last couple of years, kind of an interesting shift in um, in sort of the balance of transactions. Certainly, are still in Seattle just because there's more concentration of properties. But if we're looking at sales volume, you know, we had a, a pretty precipitous drop off between 2019 to 2020, um, obviously because of the pandemic, but we were expecting it anyway because of the change in the excise tax structure that occurred as of January 1, 2020. Um, we saw a lot of sales kind of, especially fourth quarter um, uh, in 2019. So 2020 was was measured for several reasons. So we for the tri-county area, if you will, we went from about 7.4 billion in transaction volume um, for the year down to ju- just about 2.9 billion in 2020. So far this year, we're about 745 million um, for kind of the Q1 uh, stage. And we've done a little bit of forecasting as to where we think we'll end up. And we're we're forecasting about at 6.2 billion. So um, you know, certainly certainly gaining a lot of ground from last year and really gaining on some of the volumes that we saw, record volumes that we saw in 2019. So that's that's really good news. Um, in terms of where the market's going, I would say, you know, we saw some, some reticence in the investor pool last year, just perceiving more risk in the market, which was probably correct perception. Um, and so we saw uh, cap rates sort of rise up a little bit. 
Um, but what's interesting this year so far is cap rates have actually been coming back down, and that may be due to two reasons. Um, we see a little bit more in the way of transactions because people are starting to see clarity in the market. We have more sales that have occurred, so investors are feeling more confident around where values truly are. Um, and we're seeing a little bit of uh, challenges on the operational side, which is putting downward, I should say, downward pressure on NOI. Um, and ultimately uh, cap rates. So that's kind of a quick primer. Feel free to ask sort of more specific questions, but that gives you an idea of volume and, and cap rates. Yeah, no, that's great. And before I jump to Bob on some land, um, I wanted to ask you a question around the market as it relates to Are you still seeing, is this still active? Are you still seeing uh, a lot of outside the area money coming in or is it local buyers? Um, what are you seeing in the market today? Yeah, I would say it's a mix. Um, you know, we we definitely have seen, uh, you know, more investment um, activity from, call it San Francisco and California buyers over the last few months, um, you know, and, and the, with the headwinds that you alluded to um, with regard to uh, the legislative environment, you know, it's worse there. And so it's kind of all relative. And so, you know, this this region is still relatively inexpensive um, as, as we relate it to other markets. So um, we have seen that local investor. We are starting to see, you know, kind of a phasing out of the mom and pop type of investor and more towards a professional um, real estate investor or normally with property management, as an example, putting property management in place as opposed to self-managed. Yeah, that's interesting. So, so the the comfort level for those with more experience than at the institutional level or just below the institutional level level, you think would be more apt to be buying now, whereas the the local mom and pop buyers are probably sitting on the sidelines waiting a little bit. A little bit, but I would say they're they're coming, you know, back into the market. Or you just have, you know, different groups of investors. Like, for example, the you know the tech investor who's very heavily weighted in his his or her stock portfolio and looking for alternatives and and finding real estate to be an excellent alternative. You know, when we think about investment real estate, we're not looking at a, at a hold time of one or two years, which we understand that there's going to be a recovery period this year and next year. Um, you know, we're looking at, we call it five to 10 year holds. And, and the perception is by then that the market will be fully recovered and, and performing well. And we have, you know, a, a, a dearth of, um, of units after 2023 coming online. So we do think rents are going to start moving at that point as well. Well, that's good to know. Um, Bob, I want to turn to you on industrial. I, sure. I mentioned land earlier, but that's going to fall under Stuart. I want Stuart to comment on kind of the, a land thought. But as far as industrial on the south part of Seattle, the north part of Seattle, um, can you give us a little bit of an update or where you see the market at? Sure. Yeah, it's, um, you know, we had a, a fairly robust uh, activity in the north and south Seattle industrial markets um, prior to COVID. You know, COVID did put a damper on a fair amount of activity, especially just for especially for local kind of regional businesses, mostly local businesses, manufacturers, small distributors. The, the national uh, tenant mix was still fairly active. Um, but we were now seeing um, we're now seeing the market come back a bit. Um, I think prior to COVID, we were landlords were pushing rates really hard, 
and we kind of plateaued, I would say, in, in probably early 2019, I think we hit hit a ceiling on, on rents. And then we started, you start seeing smaller to mid-sized businesses moving down into the Kent Valley just to get the, the, the price break because you're still 25%, give or take. Uh, you know, difference in rent down there. So there's a little bit of savings. Plus there's just lack of inventory in Seattle it also pushes people south. We're hovering at about 3% vacancy rate now, which is historically about where we're usually at. I mean, even at the height of the recession, we're at seven, we hit seven and a half percent vacancy, which is still really healthy, but it's usually between two and 5%. It's been that way for, you know, since probably last 25, 30 years. Um, one of the bigger, uh, so we have, we have a lack of inventory in South Seattle and, um, which is keeping rents up. Um, we're not seeing them push too far past, I would just say on an average, probably a buck 20 a foot on shell rates, regardless of the size of the space in, in the market. Uh, the biggest phenomenon that we've been seeing over the last couple of years though, is the, um, the emergence of, of institutional buyers into the city. Um, you know, prior to, let's say maybe seven years ago, institutional buyers were only interested in, uh, class A, you know, class B, um, traditional business parks, industrial distribution centers. Um, but that product has traded so many times in the last 10 years that it's kind of tapped out down in the Kent Valley. Um, even though you still see the trades happening, but people like Prologis, Torino, um, Bridge, um, Others um, have been buying, kind of assembling portfolios in South Seattle, buying buildings as small as 30,000 feet, getting it on that you know five to seven million dollar price range where before they would not even be interested in anything under 10 or 12 million. And the 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 problem with that activity um, to the local economy or local investors and and local business owners is that it really is priced owner users and and local investors out of the market. So if you're um, you really if you're a local investor um, looking to buy an uh, industrial flex type of property, you got to you kind of have to stay under I would say you know maybe six six seven million dollars for sure maybe even under five in, in order to not compete with industrial I mean institutional buyers. So it has put a squeeze especially on owner users who you know there's a lot of people out there who want to buy buildings for their businesses but. Um, it's, it's tough to shake those loose. So what we're trying to do for those clients, investors and users is uh, a lot of these transactions are off market. So um, it's been a kind of an interesting transition um, over the last couple yeah. of years, for sure. Has there been, has there been much of a reduction in uh, availability through repositioning where it's so expensive that it's tearing down the industrial and building multifamily or mixed use? I mean, are you seeing any, any of the reduction uh, square footage go down? Um, you know, most of that has been, has happened uh, probably more so in the north of downtown market, let's say Ballard, you know, Interbay, Fremont, some of the smaller, funkier industrial buildings that were, you know, have been leveled and have office or multifamily put on them. South Seattle, not so much. I mean, the, the, the conversion of, of a lot of industrial, I would say in the stadium district and kind of maybe north of Spokane Street, north of Lander, that's kind of already happened. Um, where you've got breweries and wineries and other kind of retail that industrial has been repurposed to, but the rest of it, um, no, the inventory really hasn't, uh, you know, for usable industrial space, it, it's still kind of maintaining its 
it's a level of, of occupancy and availability. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. And then, uh, and Stuart, I know you've done a lot of land transactions, a lot of clients out that are looking for those types of ground up developments as well. Seeing mud, or I guess the quote would be more the market update from your side as it relates to like land transactions or land opportunities uh, in the Seattle market. Sure. Uh, you know, when I always think about land and you think about kind of the recession we went through, you know, there are a couple kind of things that I always factor in. One is land tends to get hit hardest of all asset classes because it's all about expectations and there's no income from it, generally speaking. And so you tend to see land prices kind of drop very quickly from kind of the peaks that we see. And I would say this time that happened less so, which is kind of interesting. And then second on land, the, the other thing you think about is, you know, if you tied up a property today, you're not delivering product for four to five years. So there's always a little bit of, it's less about what the market is today than what they think about it is for the future. And I'll focus on land, kind of urban land, which is either gonna go, generally speaking, multifamily office, maybe hotel. You know, hotel market's been pretty hammered. So, you know, where you're seeing life is in the multifamily and office market. But also is another kind of contributing factor that's affecting land prices is what the city, and we're really focused on city of Seattle right now, is doing in, in new requirements that lead to increases in costs. Uh, and all things being equal, if those lead to increases in costs, then the, then the land prices should go down accordingly. So you kind of have all those factors when you look at it. Um, and if you go back pre-COVID, you know, land prices, let's take South Lake Union, you know, you're looking at 1,200, 1,500 a land foot, 150 an FAR foot, you know, some really big numbers uh, for our marketplace. And, you know, we were probably $75 an FAR foot, maybe only six or seven years ago. So literally land prices have probably doubled, especially in these kind of closer in hotter neighborhoods like a Capitol Hill or a Queen Anne or a, a Lake Union. Kind of for about six to nine months, you didn't see much activity. The few sales you saw were probably deals where they had been tied up well before the COVID hit and the buyer probably spent a lot of money and felt they needed to go ahead and close. So I'm not sure if those deals aren't misleading on it. With that said, we would say pricing is probably only down 10 or 15% from the peaks, just because I think people are pretty optimistic about the future. You know, if you just look at the office, you know, you talk to tenant rep brokers, they're seeing tremendous demand from tech tenants again. And and we see things swinging back quickly. So as I said in the beginning, land tends to go down fast. It also comes back fast. So we're starting to see that there's lots of capital out there. So developers are able to find either lenders or mezzanine lenders or equity partners who all want to place. Because one of the themes when we talk about sales is liquidity. And there's a tremendous amount of liquidity in the market. And that affects every asset class we talk about. And if you have a good market, then that's going to drive pricing in all regards. Yeah, and, and you mentioned municipalities, um, especially around land. Um, having, I've personally been stiffed armed by the city before on land, 
And, uh, and, it, and it's never a good feeling when you buy something that you think you can do something on, you're told you could. And then, of course, they change on you. So um, so that's a good segue into us talking about that, uh, talking about what the city um, and what the municipality is doing to either attract investors or new opportunities or push away these, op- these uh, I guess, these developers, lack of a better phrase. Um, and Candace, I'm going to start with you because I know, you know, and I appreciate also if you send out on LinkedIn, you put out a lot of information um, and you follow it really closely on what's been happening with being a landlord in Seattle and things like that. And I pass that on to my clients um, because it's good information. So do you mind kind of giving us your perspective on where the city lies and what that is going on there that's going to either impact or not impact the market in Seattle? Well, I think your your question is a good one. Um, and I can comment in that, you know, we just got finished with the with the state legislative session. And that's really where we have to start with kind of the what's happening with legislation, because as um, you know, so far this year, that's been where all the changes have been happening. Um, and also and also last year where at one point I felt like a reporter and not a broker because everything was changing like every week. <laughs> and so we were sending out a lot of updates just as it, as it related to how to operate property um, on the multifamily side, because those, the, the rules were changing so quickly. Um, so as it relates to, you know, um, the legislative session, I'll or start there. I know the topic is Seattle, but that's that's really what we're finding is because now there's clarity around what the state is allowing or not allowing. Um, that is then pushing um, what I would expect over the last, you know, the next few months is essentially um, ordinances based on the statewide ordinances filling in the blanks of, of things that the city wants to see. Um, so on the positive side, you know, we did see an extension of the multifamily tax exemption program, which has been a very successful program for developers to use to essentially get some tax incentive to build affordable housing. So that that is really good, good news. Um, the state also got $365 million in rental assistance um, through uh, House Bill 1368. So that was another kind of great um, development. Obviously, the state, um, the Senate Bill 5096, the capital gains bill, that was a big topic of conversation. And that was real estate was exempted from that, which was a huge win. Um, now there are a couple that, um, were, that started out a lot worse and got a lot better as, as they went along, um, with regard to eviction reform and also just cause evictions. Um, so those are a couple that was Senate bill 5160 and house bill 1236. Um, those, those are probably going to take a magnifying glass and a, and a, um, college professor creating a flow chart to figure out how to follow the rules on those two. Um, they're, they're quite complicated in terms of, you know, what the new eviction uh, process will be. And then also for um, terminating versus um, automatically extending leases. That's the um, that's another element that's going to be you know complicated to, to try and, and, and follow. Uh, then in the, at the city level, we're seeing um, sort of that just cause termination language. Um, expand from what the state is requiring. Um, so there's some local ordinances 
that are being introduced for that. That's um, Council Bill uh, one twenty zero five seven, um, and then the other one that that caught my attention last week that was announced was um, an eviction ban during a school year. Um, that's uh, Council Bill one twenty zero four six, and um, you know that that's a very broad. Um, uh, ordinance as it's proposed, which is not just, um, you know, families and children, but also uh, anyone related to childcare and in that industry. So it's quite broad um, in its reach. And, and I think somebody mentioned that it's about 75% of the population could be in that category. So uh, that's, that's a pretty big headwind. Um, and so that's something that we're watching. There's also been some proposal of Right of first refusal. That's very early, um, but there's some some other um, municipalities, not Seattle, that's that's looking at those types of things. So um, stay tuned. But it's a it's a moving landscape for sure. Well, uh, the two that that I've just heard rumors on or grumblings on. I haven't done a lot of research on it. One is the uh, condo provisions. So if you're a developer and you build condos, they're trying to reduce. The amount of liability or kind of cap the liability that you'd be i don't know if you know anything yeah about and, and there's been you know a lot of talk of that and, and i think at the state level the, the condo legislation you know something there was some legislation that passed basically like in 2008 that just killed the market we i used to see conversions of apartment buildings you know all the time i'd sell apartment buildings that were um converted to what I loved about it was it was entry level um, for sale housing. And we haven't had that now for, you know, t like 15 years. It's just, it's tough. So then the entry level housing is whatever, you know, condo stock happened to be there before or townhomes, which are pretty expensive if you think of entry level. So um, I know that there were some changes made a couple of sessions ago that were supposed to soften that, that liability, but it hasn't made a measurable effect. Um, although the stronger the the um, single family home market gets, the you know that that side of um, product, the stronger that gets, the stronger demand. At one point, those numbers for condo conversions will work again, or new yeah. construction condos. So that's what yeah. we typically see when when the residential market gets as hot as it is now. Yeah, no, I and and the entry level, I mean. My daughter's coming out of college next year and she's out looking around and she comes back just discouraged because somebody coming out and you get a good job, you really can't afford to buy an entry level home or a condo. Um, so having a product out there, I think is definitely needed for that entry level. Piece. Um, the other thing that I heard, I haven't followed up on this one either, is that they were going to do away with single family home lots, something where it, no longer you build like a single family home. It has to be at least two to four. Um, well, I think my understanding of that is that they're opening up the zoning for um, for that multifamily use, and they're called ADUs or um, sort of these backyard cottage ideas. Um, and the challenge is those are not measurably adding kind of call it you know units. Um, for a large number of people. They're just, it's not in scale. It, it, it seems like it's adding density, but you know, to really add density, that's, that's about looking around like light rail stations and adding density in those areas and then allowing larger projects to occur. 
but kind of sprinkling in these very expensive to build, you know, um, uh, you know, converted garages and things like that. I, that doesn't measurably impact density um, to create affordability, in my opinion. Yeah, and, and and I've heard the same thing that people that talk that they've done them, they they're still getting a large amount of rent, so it's not really hitting the group that they're trying to hit, which is no, make it affordable. New construction. You know, affordability only comes when you have what, what's considered naturally occurring affordable housing. That's existing product, not new product. New product right. is by definition luxury because it costs between, you know, three hundred and five hundred thousand to, to to build. Yeah. Yeah. It make it makes it really hard to make that affordable. Yeah. And today's luxury product is tomorrow's affordable housing. That that's one way to think about it as well. Yeah. Yeah, and construction costs are getting more and more expensive. Um, hey, so on industrial side and some of the clients that have been repositioning their buildings or or trying to do something else within the industrial properties, are you seeing any mm-hmm. issue with the municipalities at all regarding that? Or are they welcoming it? Or are they dragging their feet? I mean, what's what's kind of been your experience with, uh, with North Seattle and South Seattle related to industrial? Yeah, there hasn't really been, I mean, I don't, there hasn't been like a, any kind of political, you know, roadblocks or hesitancy to approve projects. The biggest thing is just the amount of time that it takes to get it done. Um, you know, almost, I know Joe Blattner over at Avenue 55, he bought the Compton Lumber site down just south of the first South Bridge. And he's, you know, he's building a couple hundred thousand feet of multi-floor industrial there and it took him i think almost two years to really get us up and um part of that was just the lack of staff at the city but also the city last year changed the uh, seismic code on um pilings so it added to cost and redesign things like that so uh, kind of naturally i guess progressing you know code uh requirements um I know, so it's mostly a cost issue uh, on top of the, just the delay, but um, yeah, not a whole lot of uh, restriction. I mean, I think the city in some ways, um, you know, likes to see some repurposing as long as, you know, properties um, are getting repurposed to meet demand for local business. Um, so yeah, not seeing a lot of that um, roadblocks there. Yeah, well, you mentioned, you mentioned seismic. I think that's one of the things that some clients I've worked with have always had fear about buying some of the older buildings in Pioneer Square or, you know, along over in, uh, you know, across from the waterfront Mm -hmm. is dealing with seismic and retrofitting. Um, And for some reason, again, back to, I just know just a little bit, I heard that they were going to be, there's going to be almost like a forcing owners to seismically update their buildings and they're going to give them a certain amount of time to do that. Um, are you familiar with that? You know, I have not heard that. No. Um, yeah, I know. You, and typically the city's kind of, kind of somewhat let it be. I mean, after the last big earthquake, it was really the banks that were really pushing landowners to get their seismic up in the older parts of town just because they want to pay for buildings that are, uh, you know, hit the ground. So, but no, I have not heard that. I know that, you know, the other thing um, that we're seeing is um, in any kind of industrial conversion, especially it's not just this, there's, there are seismic requirements, of course, when you're going from industrial use to, you know, 
more of a retail or wholesale use where you have fire and safety standards, but it's the energy code upgrades too. Um, Two were to build building yesterday. That was a brand new uh, building that was put up um, about 8,000 square feet that had suffered, you know, fire damage. So they just scraped it and did a new one. But, you know, you've got energy code. um, You've got um, one of the ones that surprised me was like the load on an industrial building. And it's probably that way for maybe office too, is that you have to prepare for the possibility of putting solar panels on a roof. So you've got to build that roof to spec to be able to support solar panels down the road um, if you choose to put them in. But you got to, so just, you know, things like that, um, they make buildings better, but when you pile that kind of requirement on top of the material costs that we're seeing, you know, the increase in material costs coming out of COVID, it's getting pretty pricey to really build anything today. Yeah, across the board on all asset classes. For sure. Hey, uh, Stuart or Candace, have either of you heard anything about these retro or seismically update, you know, in Seattle properties? Stuart, you want to take that well, one? Sure. I mean, you know, other cities have been much more aggressive on pushing owners, especially of masonry buildings, to do upgrades to them. Seattle's probably further behind, so you hear about it, but there hasn't been really a big push. I mean, where it's going to come in is when people want to sell their project, you know, buyers are going to say, I got to factor in, I'm going to have to, you know, do a seismic upgrade on this building. Uh, yeah. So I think the market will probably dictate what happens more so than the city. So there's some talk in the city, but not a lot about it okay. uh, yeah. so far. Yeah. And I echo what Bob said, you know, what's, you know, there's lots of things driving costs. And then you add kind of energy code and seismic code on top of what's going on. You know, people start feeling it a little bit more. You know, if rents start going up fairly quickly, then people are going to worry less about it because that'll cover up some of those costs. And, you know, it seems to be that rents are going to start going up, especially in, you know, office, multifamily and industrial over the next year or so. Yeah. And Candace, did you have anything to add on that, on the seismic? Oh, I was going to comment that that was sort of, I call it maybe five years ago, there was some, you know, talk about there, there's a list and, the, you know, what's the city going to do? And, you know, there are certain buildings that are on this list. And um, I, I actually was working on the sale of a, a building that was um, not yet seismically upgraded and, you know, worked with the engineer that did a report on that Um uh, and worked with the city on some of the codes, but they they just have not been able to prioritize that initiative. And especially with COVID, you know, my my sense as of late is that is about the last thing that's on their radar um, with all of the other things that they're working on right now that's just pushed to the bottom. So n- not a risk right now. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I was looking, because I was looking at a couple of buildings in Belltown and then I went and I talked to somebody in the city and this was last year before the pandemic, and they were just warning me, saying, "You know, you have to do the seismic." And uh, and the reason why the property is going to be for sale is that the landlord has owned the building for an extremely long time, didn't have the money to do seismic, so it was almost forcing him to have to sell, which isn't a good thing either. So, um, so I was kind of curious on where that's coming about because if that starts forcing people to have to transact their properties, they can't afford to put seismic updates. The same could be true when they start to force down some energy efficiency rules too um something to keep mm. keep a lookout on i guess yeah um 
Now, as far as as far as the markets going, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you, Candace, on this one. When you're dealing with your clients, I mean, how are they responding as it relates to the market? And I know you work with a lot of longtime investors that have always bought in Seattle. Are they still actively searching, or are they kind of kind of waiting to see what happens coming out of the pandemic and these legislative rules uh, around vacancy and around evictions, things like that? Um, you know, I would say that there are there are definitely investors who are looking for, um, for for property. You know, and it just sort of depends on the individual individual investors' business plan. Um, there's definitely a little bit of wait and see going on um, with regard to uh, taking on. You know, if they have an existing portfolio, they know the risks, and, and taking on more is you know maybe not their area of focus. But by the same token, you know, there are some properties that have been on the market lately that are amazing um, buildings. And, you know, I'll give you an example. We sold a building over on um, on uh, Mercer Island and we ended up with 13 offers. We ended up um, $400,000 over list and we listed it at just under a three cap. So I think we ended up at like a 2.68 cap on at closing. So, you know, that's an example of strength of market. I, you know, we have another building that we're marketing um, in Lower Queen Anne, and we had six different parties looking at that one. We, we've seen multiple offers on, um, you know, I would say the balance of the listings that we've been bringing out. Now, the trick is pricing them right. And the, the biggest thing that I think has shifted is that uh, belief in kind of the price per unit, price per square foot. If you buy kind of at the right price per pound, you know, the cap rate and the rest of it will figure itself out. Well, now we're just seeing a little bit more of an emphasis on current operations. And especially, you know, if you're in an environment where paying rent is optional, um, you know, a renewed focus on the actual cash flow and current cash flow um, of these investments is, has been more of a focus than before. Yeah, I, you know, I was in a, a little bidding war over the weekend um, down in Hood River, and it was uh, for a client uh, buying an apartment building, and they had six offers all over ask Hood River, and I think they trade almost in the four cap range. Um, well, for the know, and what's interesting is there's been, you know, a lot of emphasis on call it tertiary markets, you know, looking at apartment buildings outside of the city of Seattle, for example, and it's some of it's because of the regulatory headwinds. But, you know, I would caution that if everybody goes there, then it's no, you know, and now you have a six, whatever, however number of folks were bidding on it, you're no longer kind of getting the deal or, or you know, striking out on your own with your own ideas if everyone's doing the same thing. So, you know, while um, Seattle has been, you know, the downtown has been quiet because you don't have workers down there and, and retail has been closed, you know, to assume that's the forever um, situation is is probably missing something. And yeah. I've been encouraging this is kind of a unique time to to kind of double down on on buying in Seattle, because, you know, as we come out of this and people are back downtown and, you know, the, the arts and culture opens up again, we have a waterfront park, all these things are going to be attracting, you know, tenants back, tenants back into downtown, happy hour after dinner, after um, work, things like that. And, you know, people are going to look at values where values were in five years and, and kick themselves. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I think and I think uh-huh. to add to that, I mean, Stuart, if you don't mind speaking to the office market downtown, you mentioned there's a lot of tenant business going. Do you see that there's still office demand in your office that would kind of support that? Where they're saying, hey, we're going to be back in the office. Seattle's going to open up once we get all this. Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I, I think we're not 100% sure what's going to happen. I mean, we've all heard, you know, all the different theories. Everyone's going to move to the suburbs. Everyone's going to work from home. You know, I think at the end of the day, several things are true. One, there are a lot of companies, especially tech companies, that are starting to grow again in the Seattle market. It's not just the, you know, mega companies like Amazon and Google and Facebook and Microsoft, but these sort of 20 to 100 employee companies, tech companies that really are growing very quickly. And when you t- when you talk to them, and I've talked to a lot of tenant rep brokers, you know, what they're saying is they're taking more space than they thought they would before, that they're going to have a little bit less density, and that their employees are saying, oh, yeah, I may only be at work three days a week, but I'm not sharing my cubicle or office with someone else. I want my own office or cubicle. May not be there as much. So, you know, I, so I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think, you know, demand's going to come back really quickly. I mean, it's clear on the east side. I mean, the, the east, our east side office market may be as good an office market as there is in the country. We had more tech deals done in 2020, over 100,000 feet, than any other market in the country. And that's really staggering when you consider. You know, we're not quite as big as places like L.A. and New York City. So mm-hmm. the east side has clearly come back. I echo what Candace says. I think Seattle will come back. You know, there may be a little bit of a movement to the Fremonts of the world and some of the suburbs. But, you know, mass transit serves downtown. That's where people want to be. That's where the cultural activities are. We keep forgetting that we got rid of the viaduct. It just kind of got lost in COVID. But, you know, the waterfront's going to be amazing when it's all done. Um, I think it's going to come back. Sure, vacancies probably, when you factor in sublease, is probably a little bit over 15%. But we're hearing some of these companies are already, like Uber, had two floors of sublease space. Now they only have one because they realize mm-hmm. there's more demand for office space than they thought before. So I think we're going to see that happening will it be a hundred percent of what we were hard to say but i think it's going to be there and because of the tech growth i think at the end of the day we're going to start seeing positive absorption and we'll see the vacancy rate in seattle get back down to that kind of 10 percent magic number pretty quickly which is where it already is on the inside yeah derek i, I agree with Stuart and candace i mean i, I like candace's uh statement about doubling down in seattle um, you know, I've got a hand, I got a couple of investors. One has decided to sell his, you know, single, uh, you know, single occupancy rental homes and a couple of duplexes in in north of downtown just to get out of Seattle because of the regulatory environment with multifamily and rentals and, um, you know, so we were looking uh, out in Spokane and Ellensburg and Boise and. You know, we got on the phone with my colleagues over in our offices over there and they're just like, you know, secrets out. I mean, you know, 
the local investors in Spokane and those markets are, you know, they've been buying stuff up because they're, you know, investors are kind of looking that way. Companies are moving out of the Seattle market to some degree and there's some growth in those markets. So, um, I mean, I was shocked when I looked at Spokane recently. I mean, two years ago, you could pull up all kinds of great, you know, value add opportunities in Spokane, Spokane Valley, you know, office retail industrial and there's nothing on the market out there anymore it's just a handful of things so um i like the i think there's opportunity now in all of our uh product types in seattle because there has been a softening because of covid you know restaurants some industrial some you know older industrial properties office especially i mean i think if people work with their brokers looking for um kind of either off market opportunities or things have been sitting for a while. Um, I think there's real opportunity there. And, and I, I don't think anyone has ever, you can always say people are overpaying for property, but you know, we've been saying that probably the last 10 years, why did Prolog just buy, you know, this or why did urban visions buy that for this amount of money? That's crazy. Well, a couple of years down the road, you kind of look, well, that wasn't so bad after all. I mean, even like look at Chris Hansen paid for property, double double land value around the stadium district down there, and um, what for what it was worth when he bought it. But markets caught up to that at this point. So, yeah, no, that's that's a great point. I know that uh, typically, if you're looking to make the money you want to make on a transaction, you want to be where the people and population is, not where everybody's chasing a yield. And and that's when when I got when I submitted that offer on Saturday, and then I get a call on Sunday, and we're one of six. I'm like, this is Hood River, you know, yeah. one of six, and it was a substantial. I mean, it's a eight million dollar plus transaction. So, uh, yeah, I was really I was really taken back by that. And then they got the offers of you know all cash, close in three weeks. I mean, it's like okay. I mean, um, <laughs> what Candace said earlier. I think the idea of looking for the opportunities in Seattle. Um, I've got a few things over in West Seattle. I mean, there's just, I like West Seattle because people are not going because of the bridge, but you know, they're going to fix that. So in a couple of years, you're in a good spot again. Um, mm-hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, if you're going to look, don't, you know, I wouldn't be looking too far out. I'd be focusing here at home uh, if I was looking to buy another piece of property or two. Well, and, and people forget that that when you're chasing yield, you know, higher cap rates, cap rate is an assessment of risk also. Mm-hmm. It doesn't just mean cash flow. <laughs> yeah, and, and especially in market, there hasn't been a job increase. It's the same amount of jobs they had two years ago to the same amount of jobs they have today. Um, mm-hmm. But there was a there was a lot of people that were banking on this. I'm going to leave Seattle and I'm going to get you know I'm going to move out to Boise. Well, they did, and you know we have our place in Arizona. But what people did is they're just leasing, they're just renting, they're just leaving for a year or two with the anticipation of coming back. Um, so you kind of have to look at that market. There has been a study done on that and who's actually leaving for good and making purchases versus who's leaving because they can work, you know, from anywhere. And so they're going to take a year and, you know, be over in Chelan or they're going to take a year and be somewhere else. So anyhow, um, and I'm going to follow up with you, Bob, on this, on the, uh, on the clients and what you were talking about, you know, a couple of clients you're working with. What are you hearing from your clients? Are they, are they still actively pursuing the opportunities in core Seattle, you know, north, south, um, where they can find industrial? Or is it, you know, with the low vacancies, there's just not a lot of deals for them to kind of consider? 
Yeah, I mean, the deal flow is slow, um, but, you know, you know, all the institutional buyers are still pounding on the doors of brokers in the market trying to find off-market, you know, deals, um, trying to find inventory. So, you um, know, look at Trino just bought that Southlander business park that was announced the other day at, you know, 317 bucks a foot for a kind of flex business park there. That's 130 bucks a square foot on the land. Um, Prologis is bought in smaller buildings too in the $300 range vacant um, kind of pro forma cap rates and like three and a half to four and a half, but they're in it for the long haul. You know, they're in it for the long hold. They're not in it to, for the seven year flip. So they're, they're willing to way overpay for property just to assemble a, a portfolio um, on the kind of the, this non-institutional investor. Yes. People are still hunting and pecking and looking, um, you know, part of it, part of the, I guess the lack of inventory too is like our vacancy rates are low. There's people aren't motivated to sell because um, they got cash flow unless there's a, you know, family estate or something like that, or it's time, just time to diversify. But, you know, things are good. Rates have held up over um, this COVID outbreak and the shutdown and except for uh, retail, of course, but um, industrial rates have held um, demand is held. So, there's not any fire sales on on anything out there, but uh, people yeah. are still hot hot cool. on the market. It doesn't matter where it is. It could be Interbay, Ballard, South Park has been a actually a new um, area where you can get some value, and there's been a lot of attention down there of recent months. Yeah, and, that, and that's kind of moving into uh, <laughs> kind of my last topic for each of us to discuss is opportunistic. You know, if if someone calls you today, and I'm going to start with you, Stuart. If somebody calls you today that's looking to invest in the Seattle market, are there certain pockets within the Seattle area, you know, West Seattle, um, are you going to Rainier Valley? Are there certain pockets that you would kind of steer them towards as it relates? And I'm going to, and I'm going to, I mean, preface this non-institutional investor because, you know, they can, they can pay. I'm talking about the mom and pop who's investing their own money, bringing in a couple partners. Are there any, are there any up and coming areas that they should look at? Well, that's a good question because, you know, on the other hand, you kind of go, you know, where is institutional chasing opportunistic? And you're kind of saying, and so to a certain extent, the answer is where they're going, you don't want to go as a mom and pop. I mean, clearly institutions are going and following the light rail. So whether it's the U District or Northgate or soon to be Linwood, you know, institutional capital loves that story and it's going to go after that for sort of more opportunistic and value add deals. I mean, it's tough for, you know, mom and pops. I think it's less location than size wise. I think, you know, as Bob said, once you get over five or 6 million institutions start going after it. So I think it's finding those smaller projects, you know, on the Capitol Hills of the world. And I'm kind of referring to office, you know, I think Fremont, if you could find something Ballard, will, I think will be a, a pretty good market to go. So, I mean, I think those are some of the areas. I love Georgetown. There's isn't much product for office there. So if you could find it, I would do it. So it's sort of those. And you notice most of those areas don't have light rail going to them. So the institutions aren't going as hard, but you're going to see institutions go after Fremont and they'll probably be going after Ballard at some point. So uh, I think it's more staying under the radar on smaller stuff um, than a geographic. Yeah. 
Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and I know Bob mentioned earlier, you know, that sub $5 million mark. I mean, that's kind of, um, I've noticed when I started bidding on things um, on behalf of some of the family clients I work with, they just get priced out because their returns, I mean, they'll, they'll even take a four or 5% return, but they're getting gobbled up where they're getting, you know, three and three quarters. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's tough. Um, so Candace, I'm going to give you the exact same question. Somebody calls you and they, they got some uh, the monies to invest and they like that they hear and they like the Seattle market. Are there certain pockets, you know, uh, the, the Queen Anne market, the Fremont market, are there pockets that you see as um, an area that someone should actively pursue? Yeah, good question. Um, you know, what I would say is really think about the micro market. And and so what that means is, you know, I agree with Stuart. I, I, I actually really like Capitol Hill because it got such a black eye last year that, you know, people have kind of been steering away from it. But the geography of that of that location hasn't changed. It's still right between downtown and the east side. And what we're seeing is, you know, the, there is a younging of cities. And so, you know, our rental demographic will probably shift more towards young people. Um, and so then then make your decisions on where those young people want to be. Well, they probably want some kind of walkable retail. So whenever I think about markets that I like, I always in, I always like the buildings that somebody can like pop on a pair of sneakers and walk over to a coffee shop. And Seattle is a unique market that there are kind of that neighborhood retail um, pockets all throughout and, and you don't have to be right on one specific street. You can have that, that benefit. Um, we saw a lot more emphasis um, now from, from renters on outdoor spaces. So places that are close to, for example, Green Lake felt had very little impact with the pandemic because people could get out and go walk around the lake. Um, you know, some areas in Wallingford along Stoneway are just, you know, really lots of new retail in those areas. Great energy. Fremont Brewing and Fremont has a market, you know, with sort of you've got a tech presence, but you still got that funky, you know, kind of neighborhood vibe, which, which encourages tenants to want to live in that place. So so really what it is, is, is choose places that have a there there if you will, and, and sort of a, a micro market, some sort of retail, some sort of reason why people want to be there. Um, and I agree, you know, another great example is sort of the Columbia cities of the world and um, Georgetown, you know, there's some kind of interesting, funky, eclectic elements to those neighborhoods and, and tenants gravitate towards those locations and it's going to push pricing on, on rents. Yeah, no, and, I, and, and I'm a retail guy, as most of you know, um, so I, I love those neighborhood retail centers, you know, that, that nice little retail center that provides the necessities, you know, the hair salon, the nail salon, the coffee shop, um, you know, a couple of restaurants here and there. I mean, they, they, they do well, and especially in those markets where people just want to go for a walk and, and grab something. So mm -hmm. um, those are the markets that you're talking are the exact same ones that that I would recommend um, looking at it from a retail uh, perspective. Um, Bob, I'm going to ask you the same question. You know, when people are coming in, they're thinking they want to buy industrial or flex use, you know, something in the uh, core Seattle area, you know, whether it's West Seattle, South Seattle, North Seattle, you know, um, Rainier Valley, where would you, hmm. where would you ask or 
say they should look and of course stay below that 5 million mark. Yeah. I mean, any of those, any of the little, you know, neighborhoods in Seattle or there's South Park, Georgetown. I mean, there's still a lot of pockets of underutilized product, um, whether it be older office or mainly older industrial, but there's still a lot of owners out there that have not pushed rents. You know, the local mom and pop owners that have owned buildings for 20 to 40 years. And, um, you know, for, for example, I've got a building for sale. If anybody wants and looking for an investment in Soto, I've got one on, uh, Derek, we've talked about it. It's on airport way. And, you know, we're at five and a half cap on existing income. It's a nice little eight tenant building. And, but the, the rents are 25 to 30% on our market and they're going to turn in the next year to two years. So, um, you know, there's buildings like that, that have been just, they're always for the most part leased and, but the rents are soft and, um, you'll find those everywhere. You'll find a little industrial building that hasn't been knocked down in Fremont, um, in Georgetown, especially, but, and then also keeping an eye on, you know, path of development, um, you know, is there an existing industrial building with an industrial user or, or industrial tenant or two in it that's, you know, going to be the next brewery or barbershop or something like that down the road? Or or it's going to be a, a multifamily uh, deal. Those They're still out there. They haven't all been gobbled up. I, I, I guess specifically that hasn't been overpicked is probably Georgetown still, even though there's a lot of activity down there. There's a lot of smaller buildings in Georgetown. Um, and then South Park too is kind of a um, kind of a little gem. A lot of rough, uh, heavy industrial type of properties down there, but um, hardly any vacancy in that market just because there's nowhere for heavy industrial to go. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity down there in the kind of sub five million dollar range. And, and on the industrial side, is there is it very active of tenants? I mean, is there a lot of tenants out there looking on the industrial space? There are. I mean, it's it, it slowed down a bit, I think, in like in all market sectors this last year because people just didn't know where their businesses were going to be, if they were going to survive this shutdown, et cetera. But that's that's back. So the industrial tenant demand is back up um, and it's very, it's very strong. It definitely is. Yeah, no, it's 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 exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm bullish on Seattle. Always have been. I mean, um I just think that I just think that it's going to continue to it's going to it's going to climb back. I mean, it's, it's still well priced as compared to other tech hub areas, and uh, and it's a beautiful city. I mean, I think it's one of the most beautiful cities in the world. So, um, you know, I think I think we'll all get through this, and uh, and we're going to just three years from now, five years from now, be be downtown. It's going to be as vibrant as it's always been. So, uh, well. Mm. I want to thank all three of you for participating on the uh, webinar slash podcast today. And uh, we will we get this uploaded onto the podcast and you can find that, you know, on any platform that's out there and it's real estate investment uh, training and insights. So anybody who's interested, they can find it out there or just Google my name, Derek Doak podcast, and it will pop up. So again, uh, thanks, everybody. And then I'm going to turn it over to Shane so we can have the parting words. Yeah. Well, as Derek noted, you can register for upcoming events and access past presentation archives at www.realestateinvestment.training. I did have a question from someone asking if this uh, if this replay would be available to them. Yes, you can go to realestateinvestment.training and access the replay. <clears throat> On behalf of Derek, Bob, Candace, Stewart, 
Inland Securities, Seattle Funding Group, NAI, Puget Sound Properties, Brighton Jones, Taylor Street Capital Partners, the Commercial Brokers Association, CCIM Institute, Washington Chapter, and the Institute of Real Estate Managers. I'd like to thank you all for your participation today, and we look forward to seeing you at our next event. Thank you, everyone. Great. Thanks, everyone. Great. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Derek. Thank you. Thank you.